You've got one chance left, essentially, from Satan's worldview of making God a liar, and that's uh, extinguishing the church. Welcome to the Bud Zone Podcast. I'm Bud, your host. The Bud Zone Podcast is for, from, and by saints, our buds in the faith. To edify one another in the faith and to encourage one another to love and good works. We discuss the world. We discuss the church. We discuss the faith. We discuss truth. And we do it with the mind of Christ. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this edition of the Bud Zone Podcast. I am delighted to have a special guest, Pastor Chris LaDuke. Chris LaDuke, I am honored to have you uh, join me for a little bit. Thank you so much. The honor is mine for sure. So you are at Cannon Beach Bible Church in a part of the country that I'm not even sure is still America anymore, but tell us about you, where you are, and the ministry that you've got going on. Yeah, I am out here in uh, the axis of evil. Washington, Oregon, California, and uh, you know, I was talking to somebody else the other day. It's it's an area that's not post-Christian like most of the country. It's never been Christian, so it's an interesting place. You know, I'm on the coast, so I'm literally on the edge of the earth here, and uh, Cannon Beach, little tiny uh, community, um, the strip of land between the ocean and the mountains is I don't know half a mile wide. Uh, so it's a time warp. Uh, I don't know how old the data is, but a couple of years ago, something like half the houses in town didn't even have internet. So oh, wow. it's, it is another world. Uh, we came out here about three years ago. Um, you know, I was at, I was at uh, Master Seminary, and while I was at the Master Seminary, I uh, was involved with the Grace Advance Ministry at Grace Church, which is involved with revitalizing and uh, planting churches. So it's a it's a ministry of Grace Church where they respond to inquiries. They don't initiate anything. And so I spent three years of three of my last years of seminary in that ministry, uh, learning about you know little towns where they don't have a healthy biblical church or where there was a church that's died, and and so. Um, I, uh, when I got into seminary, didn't know what life would be like after seminary and just heard about this Grace Advanced Ministry. So I started going to meetings and learning about what's going on outside of the Grace Church bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, you know, I learned that um, there's a lot of, lot of need, a lot of need everywhere, obviously. And um, I had a business that I ran that put me through seminary and uh, about... Uh, I guess that kind of last year of seminary there, um, I began to realize, despite my greatest desire to close the business and never deal with that world again, that business had put me through seminary, and there's a lot of churches that couldn't afford a guy. And so I began to to realize maybe I had a stewardship where I would need to go somewhere and be self-supporting. And simultaneously, this church here in Cannon Beach, the Cannon Beach Bible Church, uh, they uh, sent a... uh, you know, application or whatever we call it to the seminary looking for a pastor and um so there's two churches in town there's this church and there's another church that's pastored by a benedictine oblate so well that's a, protestant. <laughs> <laughs> a protestant who's subscribed himself to the benedictine order and he teaches on uh, 
mysticism and the monks and the desert fathers. It's devoid of Christ, devoid of the spirit. And so I examined the area out here. And that's part of what I did in, in Grace Advance was we'd get people call and they'd say, hey, there's no healthy church here. Um, help us plant a church. And we would do some investigation. We find out, is there no healthy church there? Or are you just uh, uh, at outs with the good church and too proud to go back? And, and so I investigated and realized, man, this is a, this is a dark place and um, there isn't a healthy church. And so I uh, came out for a few visits and uh, convinced my wife to move to the edge of the earth. Uh, no young families in the church and uh, less than 10 people when we got here. So we moved out here about three years ago. And that's the short story long. Okay. Well, yeah, you said that, you know, most of the houses didn't have internet and maybe don't have internet. So you're not merely off the grid. You're, there is no grid. I mean, that's just, <laughs> that, that's uh, it really. Took us, uh, it took literally six months to get internet at the church because they had to bury a wire from the next door neighbor's house. And to get somebody to go over the mountain from Portland, there's a mountain range that separates us. To get somebody to go over the mountain was almost impossible because I won't pay them travel time. And so just to come out to the coast is very inconvenient. And so, yeah, six months to get internet here at the church. We had to uh, had a couple guys that knew what they were doing. They beamed it from the parsonage where another pastor lives across the parking lot. Oh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the so, travails. Anyway. Oh, goodness. Well, I was looking at your church uh, website. And there on the front page, something very big and bold. Yes, we're open. And then you've got a banner ad on there called uh, that's entitled The Biblical Separation of Church and State, a biblical case for the church's duty to remain open. And if you, if you click on that, which I've read that, and I'm going to link uh, your website and any other resource you want uh, on the show notes for this podcast, but you read through that, and you emphasize a couple of times, Cannon Beach Bible Church has never, capitalized never, has never closed. It has remained open every Sunday in 2020. Why is that a big deal? As if the dumb show podca <laughs> podcast host question of the day. Uh, why is that a big deal? Yeah, we, uh, we never closed. Um, and there's obviously multiple reasons for that. Um, when everybody said shut down, uh, we considered those orders. And uh, I met with the congregation here and I said, listen, this is what they want us to do. What do you want to do? And, and keep in mind, I had a, at that point, a um, predominantly older congregation, some of them widowed, widowers, uh, loved ones in glory waiting for them. And we had been tracking the coronavirus through Heart Cry Missionary Society's updates. Yeah. So we were familiar to some degree with what was going on with the virus. And, uh, you know, there's a group of saints here and they just, they kind of looked at me like I was, you know, crazy. I mean, what do you mean? What do we want to do? We're going to keep doing what we always do. We're going to meet and we're going to sing and we're going to fellowship and we're going to worship and uh, we'll see what, we'll see what happens. And so we, uh, we stayed open and kept on meeting. We cut back, um, we cut back initially things that weren't the Lord's day gathering. So men's and women's Bible studies, there were some here that, you know, they wouldn't have canceled potluck if it was up to them. So, yeah. Um, and so yeah, we just, we, we stayed open and realized this, uh, this is a dark time. And uh, especially on the Lord's day, uh, if there's somebody in the community, uh, they're looking for, for answers. They're looking for hope. 
Uh, maybe the Lord's doing a work in them. Uh, those doors need to be open and people need to come in and much less God's people need to be assembled. Together. Yeah. Well, there are a number of potential responses, but, uh, to, to that decision, the church is never closed. Did you get any kickback from anybody with regards to staying open when everything else was shutting down? We didn't really get much kickback in one sense. You know, I, I called the chief of police here in town and I said, listen, we, uh, you know, we've looked at the CDC's website. We're a, a low transmission area. Uh, my congregation's older. They're not out, you know, shopping, infecting and being infected, you know. And so we're, we, we you know, my people stay in for the most part. And we're just going to keep gathering on the Lord's Day as we've been doing. And uh, he said, okay, sounds like you got it figured out. And so we, you know, we didn't boast about it, which was in one sense, it was not, not to boast, but it was hard to kind of keep it quiet because I'm just into the second year of a church revitalization and you want to grow the church and what better way to grow the church than just yeah. be the only one open. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we didn't get any pushback from that angle. But on the other hand, um, you know, I, I'm involved with some, several different pastoral groups, alumni groups, things of that nature. And I, you know, very early on started kind of stirring the pot a little bit and saying, listen, um, um, you know, we share the same doctrinal statement. Why are we open and you're not? You know, what is the best resource that says uh, Romans 13 grants authority to the state over the local church? Mm -hmm. And by asking those questions, that created you know, a little bit of resistance because it was exposing that people weren't um, accustomed to having to answer these questions. They hadn't been asked before. And anytime you get asked a question that you've not been asked before and an answer is expected, and a matter of fact, you've already given an answer without having thought about it, that can put people in kind of an awkward situation. And then you got guys that, you know, they, you're in a, um, I, it was just me and another elder. And uh, so our situation was easier. You got guys where there's, you know, three, four, five, a dozen, 20 elders, and you got to have unanimity. And so some of those guys are, are feeling boxed in because they want to stay open and their, their other elders don't, and they can't publicly dissent from them. And yeah. so any, any, any resistance was really because I was kind of poking and prodding and saying, Hey guys, what's, what's going on here? Interesting. From the master's group, that kind of bubble that you're talking about, you had the example of MacArthur who I think no one would say they were irresponsible when this first came out. They were prudent. They they did the necessary things to be cautious, but it did not take a lot of time for most of us to be able to employ, you know, some basic high school level statistics and determine. Well, this is not the bring out your dead bubonic plague that everybody's talking about. It, it's a legitimate thing. There are certain people that are affected by it more than others, so we're not diminishing the significance that it's legitimate. But it's certainly not that level of, of pandemic, of plague. There's something else going on here. We've got an enemy at work behind this, driving an agenda that we're seeing orchestrated through the magistrates, through the government. So what was curious to me is that I w I'm familiar and know a lot of pastors who have come out of masters. Uh, some shut down when their magistrate told them to, their governor told them to, or maybe just by virtue of what the CDC had suggested, some shut down and some didn't. So there was this dissension 
uh, not direct. They weren't being contentious with one another, but but you had these two sides, and it's like, okay, I, I don't understand. This is not what Scripture teaches, is it? I mean, I, I didn't think that. You know, for guys that closed down, um, objectively, it's not wrong to close your church. Um, We've we got to go there and say that for local church elders, they and they alone have been delegated the authority by the Lord Jesus Christ to say, you know what, there's something going on. And in the best interest of this flock, um, you know, there's an ice storm. And in the best interest of this flock, we're going um, to stay home. We're not going to get everybody out on the road, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's delegated by Christ to make those decisions. And the issue was when people said, we're closing in accordance with Romans 13. That's a very different argument. And, you know, those, my position has kind of been, listen, um, you know, if you took that position early on, no, no, no big deal, right? Some of us maybe got it right. And the reality is that for those of us that got it right from the beginning, um, the bigger picture is that anything I've ever gotten right, uh, when I've looked up and realized I'm in, finally in the right camp, what I realize is there's a bunch of people there long before me. <laughs> I was never the first one to be right about anything. And when I've, when I've come to be right after being wrong, I need to acknowledge I was wrong. Um, I, I, you know, I need to repudiate what I was wrong about. And, and now that I'm right, praise the Lord. And so we don't want to condemn those that uh, you used their delegated authority properly and said, listen, for the safety of our congregation, we're going we're gonna to lay low for a little while and see what's happening. It's, it's a different camp that said, listen, in accordance with Romans 13, we're closing. And those, you know, those guys are the ones that really made a mistake. And you know what? Again, we all make mistakes, and we were all put into this position we've never had to think through before. And really the key at this point is who swept it under the rug and acted like they didn't make a mistake? And, um, and is now on the right side. And who said, you know what? Yeah, we messed up and uh, we were wrong about this. And now we're charging full speed ahead on the right path because that's what separates uh, the, the, the people you can trust and the people that you can't. You can trust the people that say, you know what? We messed up and here's the right path. And, and I'm going to say you can't trust the people that won't acknowledge that. Uh, it's, it's those that shut down on the basis of the, the, the ruler, the magistrate, the government has the right to tell me I have to shut down because here, I mean, I'm in Florida, we get a hurricane barreling down at us. We shut down. I mean, out of, out of precaution for the safety of, of the people. So it's not an issue of whether you shut down or not. It is what is the basis on which you are making that decision? Have you ceded authority to Caesar, or are you maintaining authority under Christ? So when you do see that Romans 13 argument, that's where that two sides, it's a kind of a binary situation. There are those on this side, there are those on that side. Well, what's the, what's the biblical response? I'm not trying to indict anybody uh, for the decision that they had to make. One of the things I do think, and, and you're a pastor, you can tell me if you think I'm, I'm out of line with this, just looking at what has happened the last 18 months or so with the Romans 13 situation with the churches that shut down in their understanding of Romans 13, I have to speculate, is the Lord using this as 
kind of a little training ground. We, we need to have gone through this so that we can get it right because the future from the standpoint of tyranny and totalitarianism and these onerous mandates, it doesn't look favorable to the church. It looks more it looks more onerous for the church. So I'm thinking, Lord, have you, are you teaching us we need to reevaluate this? And like you said, we made a mistake before. We're going to correct now and recognize where the authority lies, what those spheres are, and we're going to stay in our sphere, but we're going to call the others you know, to repentance and righteousness. So you're preaching a series that deals with this, as a yeah. matter of fact, which prompted me to get you to, to talk with me. Um, you've had one, I guess, one sermon so far, right? Uh, yeah, one, okay. one sermon so far. Yep. Which was what was the title of that? Uh, Romans thirteen. I had it up here just a minute. I was listening yeah. to it. Putting earlier. Romans thirteen in its place. Putting Romans thirteen in its place. I'm going to link to that, people. You've got to go listen to this sermon. Not not to pump you up, Chris. I love you, but this is truth. This this is explained in a way that I have not heard many other pastors explain. Now. Obvious question, did your church understand this going in? Was, was this an issue for them, and is that what prompted you really to want to speak to this? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, so I'll even back up in one sense and just answer a question you kind of semi-rhetorically asked in your spot on when you said, you know, is the Lord using this to teach us? And, um, you know, when you study church history, what you see is that God uses providential circumstances to force the church to wrestle with issues, and the result is always some clear, systematized, organized thinking, right? So that's where we get our creeds from. Mm-hmm. And there's very much a sense, uh, you know, I, I've, I always joke I'm an equal opportunity offender. Um, uh, did you, you know, get that from? I, I, did you get that from sitting near Mac, J. Mac? Is that? <laughs> I, I might have. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think in one sense, um, dispensationalism is the logical conclusion of the Reformation. It's the it's the end result when you hold to a consistent hermeneutic. And I think um, you know the there's a sense in which the logical result of the Reformation as it relates to church and state. I, I think there's a sense in which we're now needing and having to articulate something that's never had to be articulated before, and we're gonna we're gonna build off the reformers, uh, as is always done. One reformer is always built off the one before him, and and so on and so forth. And I think this is just a great opportunity for us to systematize and organize. What does God say about? you know, delegated authority and, and spheres of authority. So, yeah, I think you are spot on, and this is just a tremendous opportunity for us to get our heads together and, you know, seek out those ancient paths. And part of the problem with seeking out the ancient paths is that they're well covered over at this point. Yeah. And, and I'll, you know, I can explain that. But so, yeah, so spot on on your point, bud. Um, uh, now, we ask your next question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, was there a particular concern that you had for your local church in, in going through this teaching, or did you realize that they, like most of the rest of the evangelical church, has never had this kind of teaching because we haven't had the circumstances that dictated uh, the teaching to the depth that you're now investigating it and will be preaching it? But was it prompted by your local church to begin with or what you saw going on across the landscape generally? 
Well, I think first and foremost, it's, it was, um, you know, the issue was me personally. I, I, you know, I have a friend from North Carolina, and what he used to say was, uh, he would say, I, I don't know what it is, but I know what it ain't. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's kind of the circumstance we find ourselves in. I, I could see a lot of the wrong answers, but it was a little bit harder to articulate some clear positive assertions. Uh, what are we supposed to do? Why are we supposed to do it this way? And so there was a lack of clarity on my part. So when we, you know, when I got here, and I say this in that sermon you referenced, you know, we spent um, six months going through our doctrinal statement, which was uh, an adoption of Grace Church's doctrinal statement. Mm -hmm. It has a very clear statement that the church is an autonomous entity. And that's right. It is an autonomous entity under the sole headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our congregation, we talked through that, and they got that from the very beginning. And then in a little bit of Sunday school, we talked about Romans 13 uh, and just showing why, listen, there's nothing in this text that says the state has authority over the church. So mm -hmm. in a sense, they were pretty clear on that. But as I tried to get further clarity for myself and as I reached out to other men, what really became clear was that um, we we we're all unclear. Nobody has a good working systematized answer. And if the clearest explanation of that is that, you know, give me your game plan on, uh, on how we move forward. And yes, we keep meeting. Yes, we keep preaching the word um, that, you know, but there's always more than that. You know, the Christian life is always more than just uh, meeting and, and fellowship. Matter of fact, if you you know try to truncate the Christian life just down to meeting and fellowship, you're no longer the salt in one sense that holds back, you know, the the decomposition of the rotting corpse, mm -hmm. and that's what we're supposed to be doing. And so, uh, it became clear to me that I don't have um, good answers, which means obviously my congregation doesn't, and nobody else seems to either. And so, I gotta I gotta do some study. <laughs> I gotta dig yeah. in here. You know, on the flip side, one of the things that I would equally disagree with from the standpoint, I mean, I would disagree with the church shutting down on the basis of Romans 13 that allegedly gives the government authority over the church. I would disagree yeah. with that. But I would also disagree that the reason we're going to stay open is because I'm a patriot and they don't have a right to tell me what I can and can't do. I don't think that's a legitimate argument either. But you've seen both of those kinds of things. But what's the theological and biblical answer? So this series that you've begun, it's entitled A Christian Theology of Authority and Government from Self and Family to Church and State. Well, you're dealing with sphere sovereignty there. That's kind of yep. a novel teaching uh, for much of the church now, but it's very much a reformed, uh, a reflection of reformed thought. I mean, and you've got you've got this sort of uh, understanding all across the board. I mean, Kuiper really elucidated sphere sovereignty. You cite John Murray, who I'm in the midst of rereading re some of John Murray right now with his worldview and um, sphere sovereignty. But you make the point in this Romans 13 sermon that Paul, in writing to the Romans, is assuming by presupposition that they understand what this means. And I don't think any Christians have really thought about that. We read Scripture and we don't look behind it to say, well, there are presuppositions that are behind what is being stated in many cases, and what you've done in Romans 13 clearly shows that. But give a brief description. What, what do you mean by sphere sovereignty? Yeah, yeah. So, and that's why I, uh, in one sense, tried to 
well, I didn't try to, but, you know, stepping on the toes of those that, that maybe aren't dispensationalists, uh, you know, if I offended you there, you know, jump back on the bus for a moment. You know, so Kuiper really is kind of the first guy to use that terminology of mm -hmm. sphere sovereignty, and he's building on previous theology, right? That's how, that's how things work. And he's building on previous theology that essentially says, you know, if we just distill it down, so in the beginning, God creates... He creates everything. He creates things that uh, replicate according to their kinds. Mm -hmm. um, and with man, he gives man life. God owns that life, and uh, that man has a right to that life. And God creates some institutions that are what we would call pre-political. So before the state ever comes around, there is the individual and his relationship with God. There is the individual in his relationship with his spouse. There is the individual in his relationship with his spouse and then their relationship with their children. So we have marriage, we have family. There is the command from God to go and to subdue the earth and to protect in one sense, right? To, to guard and to keep the garden. And so um, God creates and God now governs the world through his laws of nature and Man is under obligation, he's under divine obligation to go and seek out those laws of nature. And that's pre-political. We, uh, you know, you can't subdue the earth unless you understand how it works. And so man's required to observe how God has worked and figure those things out and then subdue the earth. And so you, what you have then is before the state ever comes into existence, uh, there is, there's the individual's relationship with God that's mediated by nobody else. There is the husband-wife relationship that's pre-political. There's the family sphere, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about spheres. God creates these little circles, if you will. They have their own organic life. Uh, God governs them, and so the family has its own life. And then you realize uh, science Science is its own little institution that's pre-political. It's man's job to uh, worship and obey God by observing how he created and is governing the world. And uh, you can span, expand that out further. You know, there's going to be culture. There's going to be family relationships that are not the husband and wife and children, right? Because the, the children, what do they do? They leave and they, they cleave, and that creates a new family unit. And that, again, pre-political. And so what we have to then realize is, number one, when the state is an institution, when it comes about, uh, it's an unnatural institution. It's the result of the fall. Right. So it's unnatural. And it's not only is it unnatural, um, the, the family doesn't uh, find its genesis in the state. The individual doesn't find any of his rights or obligations to life, to science, uh, to love his fellow neighbor. That doesn't come from the state. None of these things come from the state. But that is, um, you know, if we just back up and we talk about where we're at as a culture, where we're at as a church, we are statists. Whether we realize it or not, we are. So, uh, you know, the two, the two analogies that work really well. Number one, we're the fish that doesn't know he's wet. And somebody's trying to explain to us, we're fish, we're in a pond, and we just don't have the framework to get our heads around that concept. We are statists, and nobody knows what that is, and I'll define that in a second. But not only that, not only are we statists, 
we're moving towards a totalitarianism and that's done incrementally. So we're the frog who's in the water being boiled. Mm-hmm. And first off, we don't realize we're in the water. And second off, we don't realize the, the temperatures rising. So, um, I'll, you know, I'll define both of those things, but let me pause because I'm a long-winded preacher and you might have something to say, but... <laughs> <laughs> Brother, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm tracking with you. Yeah, so statism. I mean, we're dealing with a different religion here. Yep. So let me, you know, again, I'm going to step on the toes here. Um, let me go a couple of angles. Um, uh, let me say it this way. I think, and I'm, I'll defend it eventually, <laughs> uh, I think the system of government that we have in this country is the logical conclusion of the Protestant Reformation. So you go all the way back, uh, you know, some of the even non-Christian but brilliant thinkers have realized you really have three types of government. Uh, You've got the monarchy, you've got the uh, aristocracy, uh, and you've got um, the aristocracy oftentimes is a republic, you know, somewhat of a representative group. Uh, So you've got monarchy, you've got republicanism, and you've got democracy. Democracy is each individual kind of, you know, borderline mob rule. Mm-hmm. The public is representative, and uh, then monarchy obviously is kind of a singular ruler. And so uh, you, you take the doctrine of sin, and you realize um, every person you know, is, is held in sin's sway prior to coming to Christ. And even after Christ, you still have sin in the flesh. And so uh, sin taints everybody, uh, and especially non-believers. They don't serve God. They serve themselves, first and foremost. Uh, after they serve Satan. And so, you know, these, these, these wise men that have gone before us have realized, okay, here's three types of government. They have their pluses and they have their minuses. And the, the founders of this country said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a system and we're going to utilize all three, right? So the president is your monarch, your Senate is your Republican model, and then your House of Representatives is your democracy. And what we'll do is we'll create all three and that separates the powers because Power corrupts, absolute power, you know. So, and what we'll do is we will create this system where there's these three different groups and we'll use sin to our advantage. Because people um, are primarily involved in in pursuing self-preservation, each group will seek its own good. The House of Representatives will seek to keep power out of the hands of the Senate. And the Senate will yeah. seek to keep power out of the hands of the president. Yeah. And so, so in one sense, that is the logical conclusion of the Reformation. When the, when the, you know, when the, when the cards hit the table and you realize there's sin, there's power struggles, we need to divide this stuff up. We've got to spread it out, and we've got to use, if we can, use sin to our advantage. And unfortunately, the you can only mitigate against sin so far. And, you know, the, the framers of the country, the one thing they couldn't, uh, they, there was no way ultimately to contain sin other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it won't be completely contained in this life uh, until Christ returns. And so what ends up happening then is uh, people game the system. And essentially that's what political parties are. Rather than keeping those three houses separate, as soon as you get political parties now the three houses align, right? Yeah. And they align under one party. So, uh, you know, it was as good as it could last, but it's the result, it's the logical conclusion of the Reformation where they realize, listen, there are sovereign spheres uh, that God has created, and they are to be governed uh, without the input of the state. Uh, as a big objective statement, you know, the marriage, uh, the family, 
the education system, those are to be governed without the input of the state. The state's not necessary for them. It is the role of the state to deal with sin when it crops up in those institutions, when one institution tries to uh, crowd out the other, or when there's a failing internally in the one institution. Then it is the job of the state to, to bring the sword in and, and correct things as necessary, and then as quickly as possible, get back out of that sphere, mm-hmm. get back out of that circle. And so, you know, we, we were given this incredible system. It's built on a certain premise. Our American system, and I, I would say our American system, the premise of it, the declaration, and, and you know, I'm, I'm a, I guess you can call me a patriot, but I, I'm a patriot insofar as our, uh, our, our politics align with the Bible. Yeah, amen, uh, right. I, I cease being a patriot as soon as uh, we, we deviate. So go back then and you, you consider our, um, our origin. Uh, you've got these men, they create the declaration. What does it say? All men are created, okay? All men are created, and by virtue of that fact, uh, they are created and they are given inalienable rights, life, right? Because they're created, the creator has granted them life, the right to life, and therefore it's the government's job to protect that right. Uh, that's just their, you know, don't let any other sphere crowd in. Uh, they use the sword to do that. And something else they note that's really key. They note that these truths are self-evident. Yes. They're observed from natural law, right? So we know many of these men weren't Christians. Some were. Some were deists. Some were agnostics. Some were whatevers. They're saying, survey world history. Everybody knows everywhere in the world, whether you're dancing around the fire in your underwear praising an idol, you still know murder's wrong. Right. So, so our system is built on this concept that uh, we're created. And by virtue of that creator who's given a certain inalienable rights, the state therefore exists to protect those rights. So here's, here's what happens. Um, one of those spheres that God has created would be what we you know, call science, right? Science is the observation of the laws God governs the universe by. And then the leveraging of, of uh, that understanding of those laws. So that's pre-political. Um, also education, right? Because parents are to, are to teach their children, you know, even as God says with Abraham, I've chosen him that he will teach his children to, to fear the Lord. So those are, again, uh, pre-political. Here's what happens. When the state then jumps their lane, which is really a proper definition of tyranny. Tyranny is when uh, the one authority jumps its lane, goes into another sphere of uh, you know, improperly, illegally, however we want to call it, unbiblically, and begins to usurp authority that's not its. It doesn't have that proper authority because it's in the wrong lane. That's that's tyranny. Well, when that tyranny happens in the education system, right? Every, we've got to remember everything's religious, right? Everybody, when we talk about religion, you know, how did I get here? Where am I going? Why am I here? Uh, how, how shall we live? Everybody has a religion, atheists, agnostics, everybody. And so when the state gets into the education system, they're going to propagate their religion. Right? And so they have. They've propagated their religion, which, and I'm going to make a, a, a probably, you know, maybe a little bit of offensive claim here, but it's true. 
Not you. No, you won't do that. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm going to alienate some people, but I, I think it needs to be said. There is nothing more un-American than to be an atheist or an agnostic. The, the, the basis of this country, the fact that we have rights, is based solely and singularly on the fact that we are created by a creator who has granted those rights. When you create a religion that undermines that, that is at the highest, most, most important level. To undermine that is to undermine the very foundation of the country. It's subversion at the deepest and highest level. So then what you have happen is a government gets in, they take their religion, they take over the education system, and they infect the education system with this virus that is a, a false religion. It's a religion that rejects what the country is built upon, and it rejects what is true. And that, that virus, that cancer, it spreads across the entire country. And tied into that virus, the, the rejection of a creator who gives inalienable rights, there's only one other worldview. And that worldview is statism. Right? So now we finally, long-winded preacher here, getting back to the point. <laughs> um, so well, what, statism, a build up. what a build-up, because, I mean, you're describing... This is the constituency of statism, these things you're talking yeah, about. This, this is how we got here, right? How can we fix where, we're, where, where we are if we don't know how we got here? And how we got here is this, this worldview has infected everybody, and the worldview is statism. And we don't even realize we're statists. A, a statism is the idea that the ultimate authority is the state. There's really only two worldviews. There is either God is the ultimate authority, and he has delegated authority into individual spheres, and those spheres are individually accountable to him, and he may use and does use other spheres to uh, keep those spheres in their lane. Or there's the view that the state is the ultimate authority. And if it's the ultimate authority, it determines the individual spheres. And those spheres are then subcomponents of the state. Mm -hmm. In the biblical worldview, the state is just a sphere. And it's limited by the boundaries of the other spheres. And the other spheres are limited by the boundaries of their neighboring spheres. They're a bunch of individual little bubbles. But in the statist worldview, the state is the highest authority. It then defines reality. It defines marriage. It defines family. It defines science. It defines medicine. Yeah. It defines economics. It defines everything. And so that is the worldview that has been implanted in um, for the past several generations now. And it's unbiblical. It's anti-biblical. And it's, it's impossible to have a, uh, a government like we were supposed to have and have that worldview. So even as you consider our, you know, our founding fathers and the, the wisdom God gave them, um, no religious test in order to hold office, right? That's one of the, the big deals. No religious test because historically the state had tried to rule over the church. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry, the church tried to rule over the state. Over the state, yeah. Yeah, so the church tried to rule over the state. That's Roman Catholicism, uh, you know, for a thousand years. And they realized, listen, no, 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 we can't, we can't do that. Uh, that doesn't work. 
So no, no religious test. But that presupposes that you believe there's a creator who has created and granted inalienable rights. Yeah, yeah. That's the non-negotiable. So now what you have is a whole bunch of people who think, and many Christians included, that the state gets to define all these things. And we really don't take issue with it until the time we realize there's a problem is not when the borders are being infringed upon. The borders of these spheres, right? We're back to thinking in terms of circles. It's not until the bullseye gets hit that we realize, okay, there's a problem. Well, at that point, it's way too late. Yeah. And that's where we're at now. I don't know, but does that help at all? Oh, wow. I'm just telling you. How many hours have you got so we can record this? Because there are just tons of questions. <laughs> this is so good, and this is so astute. And, uh, yeah, you're moving into that man of Issachar position. I just want you to know that. I mean, <laughs> so, so the problem, l- let me respond to that with this. As you're describing the the original intent of the government, and those still extant institutions, the Senate, the House, the presidency, we still have those things, but they're yes. now inoperable. They've, they've yes. become synthesized. There's a syncretism going on, and that's driven largely also by the political party issue and the, you know, the pride of power, the lust for power, you know, all the, all the um, vices that we're tempted with. They're still there, but the Christians seem to think by default, it's it's like default idolatry, just handing over the authority in all spheres to the state. I don't think they recognize what you're actually doing is calling Caesar God. I mean, it's Caesar Curios. That's, that's what you're doing. You're not going to answer positively if I say, do you think Caesar is Lord? I don't think any any cognizant Christian is going to say that, but by their behavior, that's what's happened. And I, and I fear that uh, the last 18 months, we've just kind of seen that as the instant knee-jerk reaction to uh, a pandemic, something that the government, well, I guess we can argue, did they orchestrate it? Did they cause it? We don't know that. Um, but we've got this, this issue, this disease, and now this, the government's the one that's got to save us. Well, when was the government put in charge of the death rate? When was the government given the right to control your health? I, I don't, I don't understand that. Well, the, the government, when, as soon as, and that's the other issue. We've checked our anthropology at the door. The reason we distributed powers in this country and spread them abroad, not only did they get divided up amongst you know three, three different branches, but the other thing <laughs> that those wise men did is they said, listen, uh, number one. We're going to first say that you don't have any authority unless it's specifically granted to you in these documents. We understand the state has, because of sinful man, will amass to himself any and every authority he can. He can. So we're going to put in the documents that the only authority you have is what's granted to you. And then we're going to take it a step further, and we're going to list out a Bill of Rights that says, here's explicitly where you don't have authority. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you, know, you, you take this brilliant system, and the, the state... Um, it's, it's comprised of sinful people who, let's just be honest, in biblical here, they serve Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. He's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Yeah. And they're here to do his will. And his will is to murder, to rob, to destroy, to distort the image of God, to make God a liar. 
And so, you know, the only way you can make God a liar at this point, right? Uh, Christ has come. Christ has lived. He did not sin. Christ gave himself. He didn't tap out. He was raised from the dead. You've got one chance left, essentially, from Satan's worldview of making God a liar, and that's uh, extinguishing the church. So that is always the primary goal. And, And, you know, study world history, Satan's willing to work over generation after generation after generation. Yeah. Um, he's, you know, sin makes you stupid. So in that sense, he's stupid, but he's also brilliant and he's willing to move chess pieces one at a time. And so we have to know my government, um, any government, anywhere I go until the Lord Jesus Christ comes is predominantly sinners who work for Satan. And Satan's goal ultimately is to prove God a liar and let the gates of hell extinguish the church. That's where we're always going. Well, amen. Thank you for that point, because you really didn't cover it in this this first sermon of the series that you gave, but we can't forget there is spiritual warfare going on, and it is... It's wicked. It's it's corruption. It's and what are we supposed to do? Well, we operate, you know, in a number of different spheres, but we're to remain faithful. Well, what does that look like? That's why I was so impressed um, with how you handled Romans thirteen. So let me ask, let me ask the stupid question: the founding fathers weren't they in violation of Romans thirteen? That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, you know, my, uh, obviously where I was trained, um, and, and I'll just make a, a point. Um, I am by no means a, a Navy SEAL, but I like to use them as examples. You know, the Navy SEALs are SEALs because of their training. They were trained exceptionally uh, with a goal in mind, and that was that you drop them off somewhere, and they're self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the training I've received from the Master Seminary and Grace Community Church, I am eternally indebted to. And what they did is they taught me how to divide the word. That is my tool. That is my sword. And you drop me off. And uh, the word and the spirit uh, and the sufficiency of Christ, um, I'm sufficient. So um, I think when we, when, we, when we ask that question, no, they were not wrong. They were not wrong. And if we go to, and here's what's fascinating. This is, this is why it's so hard, but I'm going to cover this in coming weeks. Uh, studying the reformers and their understanding, sphere sovereignty, you know, lesser magistrates, church-state relationships. Okay, even if we back up, you know, gosh, we've got, we've got a long-winded preacher going again. Um, okay, you think about the, the reformers and you start with Luther. They recovered doctrines one at a time. You know, Luther gets the gospel right, you know, bunch of other stuff wrong <laughs> yeah right um, right you know so it's a slow process one at a time of getting things right and, and that eventually works its way up to um lesser magistrates and lesser magistrates essentially is a very simple idea that there are levels of authority right so romans 13 um and i made the point in the you know i don't teach romans 13 again i spent most of the time teaching here's what it doesn't mean i'm going to get into what it does mean but paul says you know everybody's to be in subjection to the governing authorities plural mm-hmm. um he's not thinking explicitly of caesar he's talking in the plural <laughs> and yeah. even when he talked in verse three about rulers plural there's a there's a built-in understanding that there are layers of authority and because authority is not absolute, it's limited by God and his purpose and his declaration. Because authority is not absolute, what we have is these lesser magistrates that stand in between the common man and the higher authority. 
And the lesser magistrate's job is, well, we'll start at the top. At the very top, the highest magistrate, whatever he be, his job is to protect the rights of the people under him. And the guy, the, the magistrate that's below the highest rank, his job is to protect those rights. Mm -hmm. And the guy below him, his job is to protect those rights. And at some point, it's the job of the lesser magistrate, if the guy above him goes sideways, it's the job of the lesser magistrate to draw the line, to hold the line, and say, no, 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 no. You don't get to pass into this sphere. You don't get to go in and deprive people of their rights. It's his job to defend the people. So um, the proper understanding of Romans 13 is that there are lesser magistrates, and their job is to do the right thing. I think Calvin would take the position, for example, that individuals do, you know, individuals, and I don't want to say that they have no rights, but individuals have to submit, and they don't get to resist actively. They can resist passively by saying, yeah, I heard what you said, but I'm not going to obey. I'm going to disregard what you've said. You know, you're like a guy driving down the street yelling out the window at 50 miles an hour. I didn't even hear what you said, whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's, in one sense, that's what our church did with the whole Romans 13, shut your church down. Uh, listen, I, I don't even hear what you said because it's just irrelevant. You don't have, you don't have authority in the sphere. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, Calvin would say the individual um, doesn't have the right to actively resist, but he would say, that the lesser magistrate who represents the people does have the right, not only the right, the responsibility to actively resist. And so that's, that's kind of where we're at is um, the next move, I think, in one sense for us as Christians, as individuals, is first, we need to understand sphere sovereignty. We need to understand uh, the role of the state biblically. And then, once we have a crystal clear understanding, then we go to our lesser magistrates who are who are up above us. And it's always been the job of the Christian to inform the state of their role. Mm -hmm. Now we don't now. now and, and let's let's just clarify because here's a um, man. This is one that bothers me. The Christian is not the church, and the church is not the Christian. They are two separate institutions, if you will. Yeah. You know, uh, the church isn't called to love my wife. Uh, and I'm not called to, to baptize people. Uh, if I baptize somebody as a local church elder, it's in the context of the local church. I don't just walk down the street and, you know, somebody wants to get baptized. So what the church is called to do, and this is where, pay close attention, there's a lot of guys that are using these terms sloppily. I do it at times, but we need to think carefully. When we say what something is or is not the job of the church, Let's make sure we're talking about the job of the church as an organized institution. It is not the job of the church to be involved in politics. That is to say, on Sunday morning, it is not my job to read through the list of candidates for city council, for state representative. It is my job as an elder in the local church on the gathering of the Lord's Day to teach God's word. Now, the Christian, though, the Christian has a very different obligation, right? His job isn't to go and baptize people. His job is to live as a Christian, to declare the Word of God everywhere, in every place, every time, in every sphere. And so individual Christians absolutely are called to be involved in politics. You know, and this is what I'm going to cover uh, in my next sermon uh, a week from now. Uh, you know, the title is um, Politics, Gospel Issue or Idol? 
<laughs> okay. And it, I, I see that on your list there. Yeah. So you know we, we can we can do the we can ignore politics because of idolatry. We can be involved in politics because of idolatry. There's <laughs> a ditch on both sides. Yeah. And when we say that Christians need to, so let me get back to where I was. Our, what we need to do, we need to understand your sovereignty. We need to understand the doctrine of lesser magistrates. And then individual Christians need to be able to go to their lesser magistrates and explain, hey, this is what you're supposed to be doing. This is how you protect us. This is how you care for us. This is how you defend us. This is your job. But how can we possibly tell them if we ourselves don't know? So, so let me. That's where we're at. Let me go to one of the to my notes from your sermon on Romans thirteen, because you make this statement. Okay, submission is not obedience. Yes, submission is not obedience. Well, that's not been the example of the church at large. We've we've made those two things synonymous. What what is it you're saying there? And of course, people need to go listen to this entire sermon. I'm going to plug it again because you've done a, a remarkable job of methodically working through, even even with what you call apostolic logic. Uh, you, yeah. you show a Peter, you show a Paul, there is a flow. It is consistent, it is biblical, and it is inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach us. So when you start with Romans 13, you start in Romans 12. But your point is submission is not obedience, though it may lead to obedience. So can you explain a little bit on on that? Yeah, even if you just start with you know basic word study, you know, to align yourself under that assumes there's a um, a line that you need to get into, <clears throat> and it assumes that you're supposed to be getting in that line. <laughs> um, you so know, I don't, I don't go. It's a rank. It, it means rank. You know, position. Yeah. yeah, it was used in the military. It was used in other spheres as well. Um, Sorry to mix metaphors with spheres, but it was used in other contexts as well. But listen, I don't go, I don't go get in line in the military unless I'm in the military. So, uh, and, and not only that, the military doesn't tell me to come get in line unless I'm supposed to be in that line. And even if I am in that line, um, the military's, uh, you know, authority over me has limits. And so there's a point at which, uh, you know, submission has built in some limits and we know that for multiple reasons and we live that way we absolutely do you know nobody ever tells a wife to submit to her husband without exception and yet in peter and in paul there's not a single exception anywhere ever mm -hmm. and so either an exception if you will is built in <laughs> or there are no exceptions and we already know there are exceptions. As a matter of fact, as I you know, say in that sermon, exceptions even expose a wrong thinking. And I, I find myself going back to exceptions. It's not that there are exceptions. It's that submission assumes a particular sphere. Once, once a command, instruction, order is given outside of the particular sphere, it's just not even relevant. And so if the husband tells his wife, you know, to worship God in a certain way that's, uh, in one sense, it doesn't even matter if it's uh, contradictory to what God has said. It's not even his, his sphere to tell his wife how to worship. Yeah. It's therefore irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether the husband said what's in accordance with God's word or not, because he's out of his sphere. And we know that. We, we, we get that. We live by that. And so uh, we have to go to Romans 13 and understand, you know, 
when it talks about submission, we're talking about particular spheres, and it, it assumes you can figure out, is the command being given, given by somebody who, number one, has the authority to make that command because they're operating in the right sphere? And if you can't think through that, then the only other option is just blind obedience, yeah. and that's where we're at. I think uh, the outline that you gave very broadly on on this apostolic logic, gospel, love, submission. You, you see these three things. You point them out in Peter. You you point them yeah. out in Paul and Ephesians, and then you point them out in in Romans. Like I said, you're preaching Romans 13, but you're backing up to Romans 12 because you're pulling in the full context of the thought that, that Paul is giving there. So it's it's gospel, it's love, and it's then the famous, you know, Pauline, therefore, submit. And Peter does the therefore. I think it was, I don't remember, Martin Lloyd-Jones or something said, you know, we would we would be so much better Christians if we could just understand the therefores of Paul, something like that, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and apply them. So... Yeah, that that's very uh, important. And then you take that submission and you show how Paul particularly breaks it down into you know the civil sphere, the the home sphere, uh, the ecclesiastical sphere. There, there are different uh, duties incumbent upon each of those. So I'm a husband, but I don't have any authority over your wife. The government has yeah. delegated authorities, and you do explain. That whole oh boy, that was just really wonderful. The vengeance is mine, and I've given the sword to the state. The church doesn't have that sword. We have a different sword. We have the one that you're preaching from every Sunday, and that's the more powerful weapon. So many Christians, I think, have, have laid that sword aside and deferred to Caesar and to his sword. But submission is not obedience. You might lead to obedience, and uh, yeah. you know, I, I would say, obviously, in the right sphere— if you're in the right sphere, it better lead to obedience. <laughs> um, but, you know, obedience is less about attitude and submission. You know, submission is, is first cog cognitive and intellectual. And so there's a rationale that says, okay, uh, I'm, you know, I, I've got the right commander above me. That commander has been delegated authority by God in that sphere in which I find myself. And therefore, it's not even to this person that I'm really submitting to, it's to God. And therefore, it's cheerful, right? It's just like mm -hmm. with, with my kids, happy-hearted obedience. If it's not happy-hearted obedience, it's not obedience. You know, if there's if the heart's not there, um, then are we really where we're supposed to be? Well, you go through Romans 13, and I'm glad to hear what you're going to do. What what does it teach? Because you went through, I mean, I've got over half a page of what does it not teach. You know, it doesn't teach that the state is a supreme authority. It doesn't teach that the state has unlimited authority. It doesn't teach, you know, what the, the state's, the breadth of its sphere actually is. So those are incredibly helpful, but I don't think a lot of Christians sitting in pews realize that. They read you know, submit to governing authorities. Oh, well, that means I have to do what they tell me. God has given them right. ultimate authority. That's not what that text is saying. And in fact, it, it does have some limitations. Uh, they are to, you know, promote the good and, and punish the evil. What's the responsibility when those things are inverted and the government's doing the opposite? This is calling good evil and evil good. I mean, we've seen this in the Old Testament. We know how God handles this. So those are very helpful. I'm excited to hear that you're going to preach on what what does it what does it teach. But you have some uh, 
some pretty uh, pointed and poignant statements at the close of that sermon that you made. And, and these are paraphrases. I did try and kind of quote you. I thought about making a meme because they may be very provocative and they, they might not be liked in a lot of circles. But you said one thing. To use Romans 13 to argue that the state has authority over the local church is biblical malpractice. It is to pervert the very word of God. That's pretty bold, Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> well, Would you I'm like right, to retract right. that publicly now? <laughs> <laughs> if I'm right, I'm right. Um, but if, if, uh, if Romans 13 doesn't grant authority to the state over the church, and it doesn't, um, then I'm right. If I'm wrong, uh, then I'm the one perverting the word of God, right? So there's no middle ground here. <laughs> so there's no gray area? Is that what you're saying? Scripture's black and white? I mean... Yeah, I mean, think about it. The only, the only world, and this is, this is right, we're, we're, we are at the point right now where we are doctors trying to assess the symptoms. The only... Okay, the symptom is that Romans 13 teaches that the state has authority over the church. Okay, that's a symptom of a disease called statism. Yeah. <laughs> that's the view yeah. that the state has the ultimate authority, right? So that, it's just a logical conclusion. If you start with a biblical worldview that the state um, you know, is a separate entity, uh, that, uh, if you will, a separate sphere that has its own realm, its own purposes, its own authority structure, its own limitations— and of course, Romans 13 doesn't teach that. Um, you know, and I taught through First Timothy, uh, and I, I paralleled, you know, uh, uh, Titus and, and all the elder qualifications. You never see anything anywhere about outside authority outside of the church. Yeah. I mean, shouldn't we be taking Romans 13 and going to our lesser magistrate and on up the chain and saying, submit to the governing authority, to them, and that yeah. governing authority is, of course, the Lord. Well, here, here's the problem. I'll, I'll, I started to talk about it a minute ago, but um, you know, going back to the Reformers, one of the really funky things is, is, is uh, you know, we talked about <clears throat> they develop doctrines over time. One stands on the shoulders of the other, and we're trying to figure out, you know, who taught what. We look at Calvin, for example, and Calvin defends the Huguenots, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, they are essentially trying to, if we oversimplify it, they're trying to overthrow you know, the monarchy in one sense. Um, but then there in Geneva, he's all for, you know, having um, uh, Servetus executed. Yeah. That's, a, that's actually a pretty simple one. Either the, uh, uh, the, either the state has the authority to bear the sword or they don't, and they do. Nobody disagrees on that. So then the question is, does the state have the authority to determine which, which crimes are capital offenses? That's really where the argument was. In, in Calvin's day, the state had the authority to declare that blasphemy is a capital offense. Mm -hmm. So the argument, that's where the argument lies. And, and all the reformers, all of them thought that the state had the authority to determine what's blasphemous and therefore a capital offense. Um, so, you know, just because you're, you're mad that, you know, Calvin approved of that, so did every other reformer. Yeah, true. Um, and, and, you know, Servetus knew that coming in. Uh, you know, he was warned not to come. Uh, you know, this guy's like, a, he's, like he's an active heretic, Servetus is. I mean, he's publishing works that are anti-Trinitarian. He's an escaped convict, right? He's already been sentenced to death. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, and so he tracks down Calvin. But so Calvin says, here's the law of Geneva that's here before I got here. Here's the law. We, we keep the law. 
right? Here's the law of the land, and it doesn't contradict God's revealed will. Therefore, we keep it. And so that's where Calvin's at. But with the, the French Huguenots, essentially what's happening is he can support their rebellion because it's actually not them that are rebelling. The actual ones rebelling are the monarchy, right? Yeah. Because there's a pre-existing constitution, if you will, that limits their powers. And, and so it's not, it's not actually the reformers there that are rebelling. It's the monarchy that are rebelling. And, yes. so, and so, so there's the difficulty. Calvin says, oh, yeah, submit to the, you know, to the governing authorities. Uh, listen, I'll, you know, it's probably foolish to say what Calvin would or wouldn't do. But I suspect if, in our day, if Calvin were alive, he'd be telling the government, you need to submit to the Constitution. It is your higher authority. You gave an oath to defend this thing and to govern according to this thing, and you're out of line. Really, what you're talking about, and you mentioned in your Romans 13, uh, just the incredible example of Daniel, uh, and I was trying to find the verse here that said, uh, you know, the, the king shows up at the, at the lion's den. Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the, shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Right. The rebellion is on the other side. The unrighteousness, <laughs> right. the unlawfulness is on the other side. Well, it wasn't on Daniel's side. Now, in submitting, he wasn't an anarchist against the king. He was in the lion's den. So he was willing to, to trust God and endure the consequences for his submission, which was actually disobedience. But in the real sense, it was not disobedience. Obedience to God, um, and he was not disobedient to the king. That, that's a, an incredible example that we have from Scripture, from Old Testament. And you've moved into the realm of the Reformers where we see just ample, I mean, go read history. That's part of the other problem that the, the church is, is so deficient in understanding our own history and how these things have been dealt with. You know, we haven't had to deal with this I don't know. I guess the founders had to deal with the whole Romans thing. There's some wonderful books out there that that have some of the sermons that were preached in those early colonial days prior to the revolution. It's amazing what they work through. And in in the same kind of detail that you're working through with the same kind of understanding of what scripture says and what is presupposed in scripture because that's what you've taught in this Romans 13. There are presuppositions that Paul expects his people already understand that are reading this letter. Sphere sovereignty. Uh, the exceptions. Yeah, we know that a husband can't command his wife to sin. Parents can't command their children to sin. Well, same way, the government can't intrude on a realm that it has no authority in. Well, you're a preacher. You've got something to say. Continue. <laughs> I want no, you to encourage um, people because, listen, here, here's the thing. I run into people, they are anxious about the times that we live in. Obviously, the issue with the pandemic, um, you know, now we're dealing with vax mandates and, and what to do and what not to do. It's a very uncertain time for a lot of Christians, and give them some hope. Give them, give them a word. What would you What would you? What would you say to them? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's, there is a lot of hope, um, and it comes in a variety of, of fashions. Number one, I would say the first hope, the first hope is that there are very, very clear biblical answers on what we should be doing. 
One of the reasons we're anxious, fearful, worried uh, is because when we're not sure what we're supposed to do, we don't know if we're in sin. We don't know if we're in obedience. When you're walking in what you know is clear obedience because of the conviction that God's word teaches X, Y, and Z, then you know you can have joy. Um, you know, a clear conscience that's informed by the word of God and, and being walked out in, in that obedience. That's as sweet as it gets. And the fact of the matter is what we're going through right now, uh, you know, there's nobody who can hear this recording that's been through this before. Um, yeah. But there's nothing new under the sun. So <laughs> the fact that there's nothing new under the sun means there is, you know, God, God's word is sufficient. And men before us have already dealt with this before. And they've articulated principles for us. And God's word has the answers. Um, now, they're a little harder to get sometimes. Um, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, but sometimes uh, those works go out of print. And uh, then we, so we got to go back to the word and do the hard work ourselves. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, so, yeah. you know, there are answers, right? We, we don't have to live in a way where we don't know what we're supposed to do. So that's, the, that's kind of the first big hope. The second big hope is... Uh, well, there's many hopes, gosh. Uh, you know, another big one, though, is when you study um, some American history, some Reformation history, there's two big, I hate to use the term revolution. So you have the French Revolution and you have the American Revolution. Uh, the American Revolution really ought to be called the American War for Independence. Um, you know, those, those men were lesser magistrates and they stood up for the people is what they were doing. They were lesser magistrates standing up for the people. And it wasn't a revolution. To call it the American Revolution has a purpose. It's to link the hearer with the French Revolution. In our day, nobody knows anything about the French Revolution, which was a godless, oh. you know, atheistic, yeah. just horrible mess. And so the, the goal in calling it the American Revolution is to link it to the French Revolution. Yeah. But what separates the American Revolution and the French Revolution uh, is one really, really uh, big deal. What do you think it is, bud? I think you already know. <laughs> well, <laughs> one was promoting uh, Enlightenment humanism, and the other okay. one was really fighting for freedom of religious liberty. Yeah, yeah. So we think about this. Um, greatest evangelist who ever lived, uh, Christ. Okay, and then you got Paul. And probably after Paul, I'm going to go Whitfield. And Whitfield had been here uh, in, the, in the States, and there was revival in this country. There was the Great Awakening. Yeah. Um, and it was a dark time prior to that Great Awakening. I mean, sin was rampant. It was a dark, dark time. And so God brought about uh, life through the preaching of his word, and through that, it transformed uh, people. It transformed what would be a nation. Uh, in France, that didn't happen. Mm. Now, so where, where's the hope? Well, the hope is um, right now God's word's being preached powerfully in many places. And, I, you know, there are many churches where they're seeing converts. They are seeing new people come to faith. They're seeing people who have been lukewarm Christians for years all of a sudden snap out of it, and they want to serve the Lord. Amen. And what does that tell you? It tells you that God is at work mightily through his word and saving a people. And for those that want to see a nation preserved for uh, the proclamation of the gospel and, and for the good of their children, 
How is a nation going to be preserved the same way Nineveh was preserved? <laughs> By the preaching of the word and the repentance of the people and the sovereign grace of our Lord and Savior. And what do we have happening right now? we got the preaching of the word and the sovereign grace of our Lord is saving people and sanctifying people. And God is doing a marvelous work right now. Amen. And so there is great hope. That is tremendous. <laughs> I, went, I uh, went to the G3 conference last week. And uh, one of the providential encounters in the hallway was with James Coates. And we talked for 20 minutes, maybe, you know, thanking him for his faithfulness. He didn't enter into this arena for the purpose that it ends up yielding, the efficacious purpose that the Lord used it for. But what was wonderful to hear is that, you know, now they've had to go to two services. They've had like 80-something people in a new members class. I mean, this is remarkable. Now, we're not doing things by, you know, I'm a former Southern Baptist, so we're not measuring everything by numbers. But it is evident that the Lord is using the boldness, the proclamation of the gospel to bring people to his church. So that is tremendous. The other thing that I, I try and counsel people with is don't forget sovereignty. There is a plan at work. All things work together for good. Paul tells us this. Is it difficult? Yeah. We're called to a path of suffering, which was the path our Lord took. Look where he ended up. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Don't let that be a cause of fear. Let that be a cause of encouragement. Amen Amen to that. The rest of your sermons, let me run through these because I want people to be following you because I'm going to be reposting them and I'm going to be listening and I'm going to ask you on again. So you've got politics, gospel issue, or idol. That's going to be your next one. Uh, then you've got, uh, it looks like a two-parter, the genesis of it all, part one, the rights, pre-political institutions. You talked a little bit about that in sphere sovereignty, so that's going to be helpful. Uh, and then the sequel part to that, the origin and history of the state. So that's great because you're going to talk about this is an after effect of the fall. Yes. This is how this uh, arrives. The Lord establishes this. Then the Romans 13, what does it really mean? Because in this sermon, you've kind of gone uh, through a litany of, here's what it's not saying. Um, The state, God's servant, and theories of resistance, which, boy, we need to to understand that. Uh, The American experiment, was it biblical or not? You kind of answered briefly a little bit about that. And then statism and tyranny, a Christian response in America. So, you're doing a lot of study. What are you reading right now? Oh, man. Because i got to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I'm reading Kuiper. Kuiper's uh, very helpful. You know, and a lot of these difficulties, as you know, um, a lot of these guys that have preceded us wrote in other languages. And, um, yeah. We're having to read translations and, you know, some of them, you know, the reason, you know, I've mentioned Calvin a few times, um, you know, the reason I think Calvin gets used so much is so much of his work is available, it's clear, it's systematic, and you got guys like Kuiper, who, you know, lived 100 years ago, a little over, you know, 150 years ago, but he wrote for decades, and we have very little of his mm-hmm. of his works and so it's harder to systemize it's harder to it's harder to organize um you know joe boot up in canada has got some real good stuff the ezra institute yeah uh he's been very helpful um you know kuiper is very helpful um uh, a book you might have mentioned uh, gary stewart's justifying revolution he's found some wonderful sermons from not and not all these guys are orthodox i mean there's some heterodox 
yeah. but in the context of justifying you know the the uh, american war for independence really some incredible work there uh that's a great yeah, book yeah. it's like 75 it, bucks on amazon so you got to find a cheap copy somewhere yeah that's that's a lot of the problem a lot of these resources they're out of print or if they're in print a lot of them were you know for a nuanced audience and therefore they're, they're very expensive but you know the benefit of that book i, I think in one sense is um, you know, he, he shows you the two streams of um, thought on was the uh, uh, American uh, war for independence, was it biblical or not? And he shows you, here's where the guys that say yes, get their info. Here's where the guys that say no, mm-hmm. get their info. And it's helpful to understand where they're coming from. You know, if I could plug maybe just a couple things. Um, everybody, I think, needs to go to, uh, go listen, you can, or not listen, go read uh, Abraham Kuyper's uh, it's his lectures on Calvinism, the Stone Lectures mm-hmm. series. I think it's lecture number three or four. I don't remember. That's the one on sphere sovereignty. I think every believer needs to read that. It's um, read it once and then read it again. Um, it's not really difficult, but it's it's excellent. It needs to be read. You know, if I could plug something else, uh, you know, Francis Schaeffer's Christian Manifesto. Yeah. Just you know, he was a prophet, and there's there's a reason. R.C. Sproul absolutely loved him. There is a reason Sproul thought the world of him. And even, you know, I mentioned online, there's a reason Chris Larson back in, you know, who's head of Ligonier, it was like April 20th, I think. So everything gets shut down. Let's call it March 15th of 2020. You know, April 20, he's posting, hey, why do you think R.C., uh, based on Schaefer, said that the greatest threat to our country is statism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was already poking the bear, you know, back then. Uh, you know, another one that I would highly recommend, Slaying Leviathan. Uh, oh, yeah. Sunshine. Sunshine's is excellent. It is, and it gives you, uh, you know, in one sense, um, I wish the title wasn't Slaying Leviathan. It might be off-putting to some people, but that's Thomas Hobbes's book, oh, Leviathan, yeah. that argued for the divine right of kings, and mm-hmm. that's a wicked, wicked idea, and it needs to be slain, and that's, but Sunshine's book's easy, it's accessible, and it gives a great history, um, and so that's really helpful. That would be just a couple that I would maybe plug at this point. Okay. <laughs> so another, I'll give you one more, another really helpful one. Um, Gordon Runyon's Romans 13. Okay. Uh, Gordon Runyon, Resistance to Tyrants, Romans 13. It's a truncated version of another, uh, he's building off of another commentary from the 1850s, James Wilson's Romans 13. Um, so James Wilson's a little bit um, uh, longer-winded and more detailed. Uh, but, yeah, those are a couple things that I think will be really helpful. Good. Thank you. I'll put those in the show notes uh, so people can read them. And I'll, uh, I think I've got most of them. I don't have Runyon, so I'll have to. I have to add that to the list and hope that I beat the Amazon delivery uh, before my wife gets home. So uh, I don't have to necessarily <laughs> encounter a conflict there. So one of the things that's popular in the SBC, so let me let me wing this one at you. One of the phrases that's always popular in the SBC every time they elevate someone to a, to a notable position, uh, you always hear this, it's God's man for the hour. Okay. You've heard that. Yeah. yeah. Joe Biden, God's man for the hour. How do you respond to that? <laughs> um, well, uh, you know. They can't see you're smirking and you're. <laughs> this is audio only, so they can't see these uh, smirks that you're giving on the 
on the Zoom. Yeah, yeah. Cain was God's man for the hour, right? Yeah, um, no kidding. Listen, you know, the Biden is not the problem. Kamala Harris is not the problem. Uh, your unregenerate neighbor is the problem. Yeah. And there's only one solution to that, and that is the word, uh, the preached word, the proclaimed word, the prayed word. Um, you know, your neighbor, my neighbor, has no greater need than the gospel. And therefore, your neighbor and my neighbor has no greater threat than those that would seek to silence the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be our worldview. So we talk about, you know, gospel or, uh, you know, politics, gospel issue or idol. Um, listen, if people are trying to silence the word in, in any of these spheres, in education, in medicine, you know, in, in family, um, then that is my neighbor's greatest threat because their greatest need is the gospel. Amen. So we need to be thinking in those terms. And therefore, that tells us, uh, you know, these, these people that are presently in charge, they are a tremendous threat, but they're just a symptom. Excellent. Brother, thank you. I, I really appreciate your time, and I'm going to annoy you to come back, and uh, we'll delve into some other aspect of this. And that concludes this episode of The Bud Zone. The Bud Zone Podcast is a member of the Christian Podcast Community, where you can find scores of biblically sound podcasts for your edification and encouragement. Go to christianpodcastcommunity.org to discover more. You are now leaving the Bud Zone. Thank you for listening. God bless you. And just a reminder, no doctrines have been harmed during the recording of this show.